it's Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. It's very brief. Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And as I, I spent time in study this week, I, I realized that there were two things that had really that I'd just not given the focus to before. And uh, the first of those was the nature of the temple. And so I spent a significant amount of time looking at the, the temple this week. And the other is the idea of a robber's den. And, and uh, as everything kind of built up, I reached a point this past Friday where I was either going to have to take the, the riches of, of what I've seen in Scripture regarding the temple and compress that into five minutes uh, in order to move on quickly. Or I could simply give you a 35-minute introduction to next week's sermon. So that's what I'm going to have to do. John, you're going to have to come back and hear the rest because we're not going to get it all done. Um, on, on the final stretch of the journey from Jericho, at the end of chapter 20, Jesus is leaving Jericho. He heals two blind men, and he's heading toward Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. On that final stretch of road, the people begin to cry out. They cry out, Hosanna, which means uh, save, I pray. They cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke has the phrase, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's all of that is done in fulfillment of of uh, a prophecy in in Zechariah chapter 9 of behold your king comes to you mounted on a donkey uh, lowly and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a pack animal so what what really kind of interests me is that when Jesus then enters Jerusalem at the end of the triumphant entry in uh, in Matthew 21 1 through 11 is the triumphant entry. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he doesn't go to the palace of Pontius Pilate, which was called the Antonia. He doesn't go to the government headquarters and say to the person sitting in leadership, that's my throne. You're in my seat. He goes to the temple and he says, this is my house. That's more important than the governor's palace. He doesn't demand that Pilate surrender the throne of Israel. He goes to the temple. It says, this is my father's house, and that makes it my house. See, at that time, when a a young man grew up and married, he would add on to his father's house. One day when his father died, he would inherit, and that would become his house. And so it was his father's house, and it was his house and it was being dishonored by the people virtually the whole culture was disgracing the temple because of the way that they treated it but before we can get into that i think it's really wise for us to to kind of refresh our understanding of the temple and the purpose of the temple and what was happening there in order to do that we have to begin way back in exodus Right after giving the Ten Commandments, the Lord gave Moses detailed instructions for the, the, the tabernacle, is what we call it. But I'm going, going to call it the tent, 
because the Hebrew word is tent. It's a word that refers to a frame tent, so not an A-frame military kind of pup tent that you would see, but the kind of tent that, in, in some, some ways, the kind of tent that people would take camping today, where they set up a structure that holds the fabric. He gave Moses instructions about it. That tent would be 45 feet long, 15, wide, 15 feet wide, 15 feet tall. It was covered with a number of layers of material, fine linen on the inside, dyed several different colors, then woven goat hair, then ram skins, then goat skins on the outside. And just to stop there, 45 feet is half the distance of this building. It's, it's about 32 feet, I believe, from this wall to the vault wall. So it'd be 45 feet to the kitchen or, or before that. So it's not a huge distance. When I looked up Bedouin tents today, which would be the closest thing we have to compare, they run uh, about 19 cubic yards in, in floor space. This multiplies out to 25 cubic yards in floor space. So while it's somewhat bigger than the tents that the people had, it wasn't monstrably bigger or monstru monstrous monstrously. monstrously bigger. It wasn't hugely bigger. It wouldn't be like comparing my house at 2,000 square feet to the White House. It would be like comparing my house to, oh, somebody's house that's 3,500 square feet or 4,000 square feet. That's interesting. If you stood outside of, of the tent in which God dwelt and looked at the, the goat hair, the, the goat skin covering it, it looked just like the goat skin covering your tent. There's nothing shiny about it. And that's because the focus is on the holy occupant, not the address. It wasn't about creating this massive cathedral. It was about God dwelling with his people. In Exodus 40, as the chapter comes to a close, Moses assembles the tent. He begins with the Holy of Holies at the back. He puts the ark in it. He comes out and he puts the furnishings in the holy place. And even thinking about the, the holy place, the furnishings, what's there? Well, there's a lampstand. You would have a lamp in your tent. There's a table with bread on it. You would have a table for eating in your tent. There was an altar for prayer. You would have a place in your tent probably to pray. There's no chair. They didn't have chairs as we think of chairs. But there's no chair and there's no cushions described. First of all, because the priests who go inside are not going to sit. They're not going to be there that long. And second, because God doesn't sit. God doesn't rest. God doesn't sleep. He cares for his people. He never went to the tent at the end of a long day and shut the doors and said, well, that's it. I'm going in early tonight. See you in the morning. The people did. The camp would get quiet at night and dark at night, but God was always present in his tent. Moses assembles all of this, then he sets up the courtyard. The courtyard was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide, surrounded by a seven and a half foot tall linen curtain hung from wooden poles set into silver bases. But think about that. The, the tent in which God dwelled was 15 feet high and the curtain is seven and a half feet high. That's half the distance, which means... 
until you're right up to the curtain, you can see God's tent. You can see it over there. When Moses was done assembling, Exodus 40, 34 says, then the cloud, this is the cloud that had been leading the people. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had dwelt on it and the glory of God filled the tabernacle, filled the tent. In other words, God moved in. He occupied his tent. God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, filled that little humble, fragile place with his presence. It wasn't going to last the 580 some odd years it was in use, they were going to have to repair it. It wasn't meant to be permanent. We're not told by the way that a little light glowed at the back where the Ark of the Covenant was. We're told that the whole place was so filled with the the palpable presence of God's glory that nobody could go in. God moved in in a big way. And if I can put it this way, and perhaps it will sound familiar to you, Yahweh moved in and dwelt among his people and they beheld his glory. There's a clue. That tent was in use for almost 500 years throughout the wilderness wanderings, through the time of the judges, through the the reign of Saul, the 40-year reign of Saul, the 40 years of David, and into Solomon's reign. David, once everything had settled in Jerusalem, said to Samuel, look, I inhabit a house of cedar, but the ark of God inhabits curtains. So Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for Yahweh is with you. But that night, Yahweh came to Nathan and said, I've got a message for you to give my servant David. First of all, Are you going to build me a house? I've built your house. I've made you king. I've given the people into your hand. You don't build me a house. I build you a house. Second, he says, I have not inhabited a house since the day I brought the sons sons of Israel up from Egypt. Even to this day, I've been in a tent. Now it says, I have been going about even in a tent, even in a tabernacle. So we find a second word there, but that second word tabernacle simply means a dwelling place. A tent is descriptive of what it was. It was a framed tent. The tabernacle is simply like saying a home, a residence. Most of the time that word is used to describe God's tabernacle. That's true. But it's also used to to describe the tents of the sons of Kedar. It's not a religious word. It's not like saying altar. It's not like saying some expansive kind of spectacular thing. Wherever I have gone about with all the sons of Israel, did I ever speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God says, I've been in a tent for almost 500 years, and I'm happy to do that. I don't need a big house. I don't need a house of cedar. I don't need a house of wood and a house of stone. Now, there's only one reason that that really can be true, and that's because that first humble tent was not a foreshadowing of the temple. It was a foreshadowing of Christ. 
And for all of David's big house and for all of Solomon's building projects, they remained mere men. They didn't change in terms of their nature. And God says, I have incarnated myself into this tent. And I'm content to dwell with my, my people there. Nevertheless, Yahweh, we know, permitted David to plan for a temple. He wouldn't let David build it. But he let David plan for the temple, and David drew up detailed plans. David set aside the money, and David made arrangements for materials to be brought in. When Solomon was ready, he made arrangements for workmen. 1 Kings 8 then describes that, that time when the, uh, the, when the, the, that first temple was finally completed, 8.6 says, Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the Holy of Holies, under the wings of the cherubim. And then verse 10 says, Now it happened that when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud, there's the cloud again, filled the holy place. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of Yahweh. There's the glory of Yahweh. Filled the house of of Yahweh. So again, we see Yahweh moving in. Again, it's not just a, a, a little glimmer of light that shines in the dark recesses of the Holy of Holies back behind that thick curtain. It's that his glory fills the tabernacle so that no one could enter it. So again, we see Yahweh dwells with his people. And they behold his glory. Ironically, having built the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon then becomes the greatest idolater of all time. And he builds temples in high places and altars throughout Israel for virtually every god and deity in the region. Because of the severity of that sin, Yahweh judged him by dividing the one kingdom into two. He didn't do that during Solomon's lifetime for David's sake. But he divided both into two, and eventually both of those kingdoms fell to the Babylonians, the northern kingdom in 721 B.C., the southern kingdom in 587 B.C. Right before the southern kingdom fell, the prophet Ezekiel describes this. He says in chapter 9, verse 3, Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been at the Ark of the Covenant to the threshold of the house of God. So it, go, it moves out to the, the door of the tabernacle. And then in chapter 10, verse 18, it says, Then the glory of Yahweh departed from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim, which had moved out of the city or out of the, the temple proper, when the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the house of Yahweh. That's the eastern edge of the temple mount, the gate beautiful. The gate that somebody could stand in the temple mount and look and see the sunrise. Looked out over the Kidron Valley, looked at the, the Mount of Olives. It's the gate that everybody saw when they're coming in with Jesus at the triumphant entry. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them at the, the edge of the Temple Mount and the edge of the city. God moved out. God moved out of his house. He left the place where he had dwelt with his people for more than 800 years so that they no longer beheld his glory. He was not evicted. He was not driven out. He chose to leave. And he chose to leave because his people had made it clear they had no interest in him. They preferred the other gods. 
and after giving them centuries to repent, he withdrew his presence from them. Seventy years after the southern kingdom is taken captive, according to the promise that Yahweh made through Jeremiah, the Persian king Cyrus gave permission to rebuild the temple. We read about that in the book of Ezra. Ezra describes the process. They began with the resumption of daily sacrifices after they had rededicated the altar. Then they lay the foundation of the temple again, and then they rebuild the temple or the the tabernacle, and, and they dedicate it when it's complete. What's never described in Ezra or anywhere else about the second temple is that God moved back in. We never see his him him the cloud shadowing. We never see his glory filling the space so that nobody could go in. As you read in Ezra, they simply dedicate it and then they just immediately resume their religious work. So the temple remained uh, a place to worship and pray. It it remained the center of Jewish spiritual life. It would be until uh, until 70 AD, about 586 years later when it was destroyed by the Romans. But it was just an empty shell. It was a memorial. It was a historical site that had been preserved. It was a museum to what had been and nothing more. It was the used-to-be house of God. Um, Historically, my heart is most drawn to the Civil War period in the United States. Of all the presidents of the United States, I think Lincoln uh, was the most significant. And so after we had moved to Nebraska, we've, we've done several road trips. And in Springfield, Illinois, is, is uh, the house that Abraham Lincoln lived in when he was elected president. He'd lived there for 15 or 20 or 25 years. The years ago, many years ago, the National Park Service bought the house and they, they bought the neighborhood and you can go there now and for free because it's the National Park Service for free. You can go tour that house. You have to get a ticket uh, for time, but you can, you can go tour that house. You can go in the, the, lower, the, the lower floor. You go up the steps and go in the door. And to the left is, is a big parlor, and there's furniture there that belonged to, uh, to Abe and Mary. When you go upstairs, the first time I went, it was so moving. The first time I went, the, the, the tour guide said, make sure you use the railing, first of all, for the sake of safety. But second, because it's original. Abraham Lincoln touched that. And it just, there are people who go, oh, okay. It sends, it just, it just gives me goosebumps. But you know that house is just an empty shell. He doesn't live there now. It's just a memorial. It's just a preserved site. That's what the temple was. Did Yahweh ever return? Oh, he did. And that's where it really gets cool. He did. See, John writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's a promise in Zechariah 2 that the Lord would return. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. 
and many nations will join themselves to Yahweh in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. Now it's very interesting. This is being spoken by Yahweh and Yahweh says Yahweh of hosts is sending me Yahweh to you. So there's a picture of the deity of Christ. And so many people in Israel would have said one day the Messiah is going to come and the glory of God is going to fill the temple again. And it did, but not how they thought. Jesus fulfilled all of the functions of the tent in his person. First and foremost, God came and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ. As a foreshadowing of Jesus' deity, God incarnated himself in the tent. He occupied a place that people could look at that had shape and form and dimension. But he occupied a living tent in Jesus. It, it struck me, uh, coming down from Creighton, Linda and I were talking, that, that the, the, the integrity, the spiritual integrity of the tent and the, the first temple and the second temple were in the hands of the people. They had to treat it properly. They had to take it down. They had to set it back up. But nobody needed to attend to the integrity of the body of Jesus. He remained sinless. God with us. And having moved into that tent of human flesh, God will never move out. He is now eternally both God and man. God with us. And what's more, Jesus Christ is the means by which God has poured out his grace upon men and women. John goes on to say in John chapter 1, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So grace heaped upon grace. Grace piled upon grace. Grace that overflows from itself. Grace that takes away sin. Grace that lifts us to the Father. Grace that transforms us. Grace that justifies and sanctifies and glorifies grace and grace and more grace and dig through that and tunnel to the bottom and you find out that it's all built up on a foundation of grace it simply never ends what's more jesus is the lamb of god who was slain for our sins he's the tent in which all of this takes place he is the lamb whose blood is offered within the holy place first john chapter 2 says that jesus is the propitiation for our sins it's a wonderful word it's a wonderful word. It means satisfaction, but it refers to the top of the mercy seat, or the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was the mercy seat. It was imagined to be the throne of God where God sat and received the sacrifice of the people. But Jesus is that seat. So Jesus is the high priest offering his own blood upon himself as an altar. And within himself as the tent, as the true tabernacle of God. And maybe that's why there's a point in the Gospels where Jesus comes in and he's rebuking the Pharisees. And he says, you swear by the, by the temple and by the gold in the temple, but something greater than the temple is here. Not simply greater in terms of spiritual significance, but having surpassed the temple as the man in whom God now dwells. By the way, if you want to know what Jesus 
prays for us, you can look in John 17 where he prays his high priestly prayer. And he only asks two things. And those two things have, have several effects. They have several results, but he only asks two things. He asks, first of all, that we would be kept and preserved. And he asks, second, that we would be sanctified by his word, which is the truth. And the reasons for these requests are that we would be one as the Father and Son are one, that the scripture would be fulfilled, that we would have Jesus' joy, that we would be united with the Father and the Son, that the world would know that the Father sent the Son, and that we would be with Jesus where he is and see his glory. Jesus is the high priest who offers his own blood on the altar of himself, within himself, so that our atonement is completely contained within him. It's untouched by a sinner's hands. You couldn't say that about the Old Testament. You couldn't say that about those sacrifices. He's accomplished all of it. And we receive the benefit and the blessing of that simply by trusting him. When we come to Matthew 21 next week, as we bring this home, we will see the Lord Jesus enter the temple in Jerusalem and act like he owns the place. And you know, he does. He does, it's his. But it's not just that he possessed the title deed. It's that he himself is the fulfillment of what the tabernacle and the temple promised so through jesus alone our sins are forgiven through jesus alone we have access to the throne of grace through jesus alone we are accepted by the father through jesus alone and i'll let you ponder this one we are filled with the holy spirit and we become the tabernacle of the spirit as god tabernacled in christ the spirit of god tabernacles within us we don't see him yet as clearly as we would like to see him. There's too much of the old tent remaining, right? But in the resurrection, when we are glorified, the spirit of God will shine out of us. We will behold, behold the glory of God in Christ and know that the glory of God has taken up residence in us. And that's why perhaps one of Paul's favorite phrases is in Christ. We are in Christ. And Christ is in us. That's the hope of glory. <coughs> As we come to the Lord's table today, I want to encourage you to refresh your humility before the Savior because he's died and risen for us. By that, I don't mean I, I want you to stop and make yourself feel bad about all your sins. If you feel bad about your sins, accept that and confess them. What I mean is humble yourself so that you understand only Jesus can forgive you. Only Jesus can reconcile you to the Father, and he's done that perfectly. None of that falls to you. None of it falls to you. None of our redemption is dependent upon us. It's been accomplished. It takes humility. 
It's pride that rejects what Jesus did. It's not humility that rejects it. It's not humility that says, oh, I'm not good enough. That attitude of, oh, I'm not good enough is really coming from an attitude of, but I should be. But you're not. Humble yourself to receive everything. Refresh your worship of Jesus as your Lord. That's what they used the, 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 the tent for, was a place to worship God. Now, in order to worship God, their sins first had to be covered so that they could even approach him to pray. We don't think about that in our time. We're, we so quickly pray. We so easily pray. We don't stop to think that they couldn't even pray until their sins had been covered. But Jesus has covered our sins. And so you can refresh your worship of him today without fear because the Father has accepted you in him. You can renew your love for him today as the one who has done all of this for you. Without fear. Without thinking I'm not worthy to love him. or He, he, loves, he loves somebody else so much more than he loves me. And you can receive his promise of Redemption, renewal, hope, and strength. Now that sounds odd for those of us who are believers, but see, we need a Savior every day, and every day we need to be reminded I'm in Him. I can easily forget that information. So we need to have that promise of redemption and renewal and hope and strength renewed within us.